From Share Cancer Support, this is Our MBC Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico. So glad you're here, since no one should face MBC alone. And so our goal is to change the barriers and end the barriers, which will end disparities. But my deeper goal is to have people look inside of themselves and see how their mindsets and beliefs and perceptions are kind of blind spots. Today on RNBC Live, we welcome back Mae McCarmo, founder of the Tiger Lily Foundation, an early stage breast cancer survivor, a passionate and powerful advocate for all stages of breast cancer, and a true ally of the metastatic breast cancer community. Mema and her foundation are dedicated to ending health disparities for all, regardless of age, stage, or color. Mema was a guest of ours on our inaugural episode, along with co-host Jersey Baker, to talk about the inclusion pledge and the impact of racial disparities on real people, and they shared how they are advocating for, well, not just advocating actually, but demanding change. We asked Mema to join us again to talk about the response to the pledge and how the landscape has shifted in the last year. We're so pleased to air this on the eve of Mema's groundbreaking session at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, also known as SABCS, the largest breast cancer symposium in the world, where she is co-presenting with the AACR on setting the stage for health equity, collaboration, and partnership. In our interview, she reflects on the significance of being asked to present at SABCS. We're also joined by two incredible advocates who use their voice and position as white women with metastatic breast cancer in the advocacy world to create opportunities for other voices to be heard and to demonstrate daily how individuals can have a real impact. We welcome back to the pod Christine Hodgson, who along with Nani Reese joined us in episode five to talk about brain mets, advocacy, and disparities. And Julia Mowis, co-founder of GRASP, along with Christine, joins us on the pod as a guest for the very first time, but I'm sure it won't be the last. Julia and Christine are leading the way, forging real conversations and collaboration between patients and researchers, doctors, and the rest of the cancer world. I could go on and on and on about all three of our guests and their credentials, but let's just get to the good stuff. An extraordinary discussion on inclusion, disparities, allyship, privilege, stigmas, and the power of the individual. We're thrilled to have Mema, Christine, and Julia join me and my co-host and truly one of the original badass advocates for black breast cancer patients, Sheila McGlone. To get us started, I asked Mema to give us all an update on the pledge, the organizations and individuals who have joined the movement, and what progress she's seen since we last spoke in July. Here's Mema. It's been incredibly powerful. We have 11,000 signatures now via change.org. We have some of the top companies in pharma. I don't want to forget anyone, but Pfizer, Amgen, Merck is working on their pledge commitments. Lilly, Cgen, Daichi, the list goes Azi, Immunomedics, the list goes on. My goal is to get the top 100 pharma companies commit on the pledge. The work we're doing is not optional in terms of ending barriers and disparities. It's mandatory and these commitments have to happen. So we have about 31 pharma companies that have committed in the past since June. 
And we have over 60 advocacy organizations and or corporations, and that list is growing. Now we're reaching out to clinical trial entities like CROs and telecom companies, literally anything that affects, any system that affects a Black woman's health and life journey that could impact her care or to reduce disparities, to reduce the barriers to disparities, we're working on those companies. What changes do you want to see as a result of these signatures and pledges? We're kind of reverse engineering it. I mean, we're, we're, we're asking people to take these pledges to end barriers for Black women that are, there are many barriers. There's geographical barriers, social barriers, there's barriers that are financial barriers. There's many barriers to care, economic, financial, literacy, and so forth. But I feel like at the end of the day, it's really asking people to look at their biases and how those biases informed how they built systems around people that they felt that they had to exclude, like Black people in different ways. And even though people that are running these systems may not be necessarily racist or biased, they are, they are the children and or these have been passed down over generations systemically. And so we're saying, okay, the system's in place, but look at, look, look at the system you have in place and how, although it's been in place for years, you have to really examine it objectively to see how it, how it has further barriers for Black people. And so our goal is to change the barriers and end the barriers, which will end disparities. But my deeper goal is to have people look inside of themselves and see how their mindsets and beliefs and perceptions are kind of blind spots. They think that are, they may think that they're ordinary. They're fine. We've had so many calls of people have gotten on the phone with me and we started talking about barriers to care and they started assessing, well, we're doing this and that and that. And when I asked pointed questions, they realized that they have biases, that they, they're part of the problem. I'm not saying that they're racist at all. It's saying that People have generations of beliefs that they've carried out without thinking about how they can create systemic barriers that can kill people, literally, in many ways, even if by, by not, not directly. So that's why the pledge says whether they want to, you know, eradicate any barrier, whether that, whether it purposefully or not even purposely thinking that purposefully plan that is impacting a black woman or her lifestyle and lifespan. So people need to remember that we're, we're human beings, right? So I, at the end of the day, it's not about black or white. It's about all lives that do matter. And if you help to um, end barriers for the black, for black people and the black population across all systems, we can be all humans that have the right to life. Even though we talk about the word disparities and barriers, we're talking about people's lives here. Yeah. Thank you. How can we, you know, that's a great thing that we want to eliminate these barriers. So black women can live longer because we want to live too. The, The fact is whenever a picture is taken, you know, it's like you wonder who will be in the picture then who will be not in the picture next time? Who will be missing? People don't see it like that. They think it's like, oh, this girl got her wings or she's in peace now. And for me, it's, you know, for all of us, it's like, no, this is not acceptable. I want you to get your wings when you're old and gray and, you know, you've lived fully and you're like, I'm tired of being here. I want to go like be in heaven with some, you know, martinis, right? Like, you know, and here's some heart music. You don't want to die because some disease stole your life away. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And thank you, Mama, for sharing how you're feeling today and how so many of us feel every single day. And I think during this month of October, when we're recording this interview, it's particularly tough because we're reminded a lot and of the people that have died from NBC. So I think it's just a, a really tough time. So thank you so much for being here and being so open and honest and vulnerable uh, with your feelings, because that's what propels us to do our work. But I think we need to also be really open about how it breaks our heart. 
all the time. The next thing I wanted to, to talk about is that we have Julia Mowes and Christine Hodgson with us too. And they're the co-founders of Grasp, right? And they're the key, and they're also co-founders of the hashtag inclusion pledge. And they partnered with UMEMA and the Tiger Lily Foundation. They actually gave very specific commitments to the pledge as part of signing on. And I want to just read it because I think it says a lot about what Julia and Christine are driving at here. And I think it's great for our discussion. So this is the press release that GRASP released about the inclusion pledge and about their part, their signing onto it and their partnership with the Tiger Lily Foundation. And it reads, as white women living with cancer who have a voice in advocacy with the scientific community and the private and public sectors, we pledge to only involve ourselves in initiatives that also include the black voice and other people of color. So Julia and Christine, can you give our listeners some examples of how you've done this over the past year? And I think it will be so helpful for people to hear just how you're leading in this way and how it has a ripple effect, because I think it does. So we'll, maybe we'll start with Julia first. Sure. So basically what happened was we saw ourselves as people that were very concerned about the disparities that exist and and we we really struggled seeing our black friends um have worse odds because of the system and and how they are treated and offered options and things like that. And then we realized that just not not liking something or not being in agreement with something wasn't enough. We weren't actually making any impact by calling out disparities or finding the problems without ever addressing any solutions. And we're loud and perhaps influential in breast cancer advocacy, but that's that's still very small. I mean, that's in breast cancer advocacy, we have a voice and we, and we speak about our experience living with metastatic breast cancer, but it's a small part of the world and it's the disparities issue and racism is a much bigger issue. That said, this is the world where we can make an impact in. This is our space. And we realized that we had the opportunity or the ability or the duty really to make that impact and this was not learned in an easy way this was not uh, something that came to us because we're nice people we literally had experiences where our racism was called out and and i use the word racism because that's what it is it's a bias it's a bias based on someone's race it doesn't mean we're evil people. I, I still think that we were good people with good intentions in the times where we um, were wrong and someone called us out. But, but it, was, it was something we were doing um, based on the situation and the fact that we are white and experience privileges that come with our race and, and that the other people are black and and all of that came into place obviously these kinds of things have happened to us all of our lives i'm sure there are many instances that i'm not even mentioning here and that i barely remember although the black people that were in those interactions probably do remember mm-hmm. but but i will mention one was in march of 2019 
Tiger Lily actually held a listening summit uh, in Washington, D.C. to talk about uh, breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer in Black women. We attended as interested people that wanted to learn and do something about it. And the two of us were in a group in a in a brainstorming session with black women some were living with one was living with nbc a couple were uh, perhaps early stage survivors or perhaps just influential in their community and the two of us and i i'm looking at christine and i know that it's okay that i'm that i'm um, throwing her in under the bus with myself so because we, we're yeah we were all together doing all of this but we wouldn't shut up we just had so much to say and we like live with nbc so we know exactly what it's like and we we can tell you exactly what you have to do and we know the problems of the world and how to solve them and it's like who are these people what cards have they been dealt with that they're so sure of themselves and they really think that they know the answers to all the problems that are being raised and it one of the women that we did not know who was a leader in her community she called us out and was like well we're talking about black women's experience living with cancer and you two are not aware of that experience and you are white women and why don't you stay in your lane hmm. and that really hurt especially I took it really hard. I, I saw myself as an ally attending that because I really cared. So why was someone being so mean to me? And I really, I actually have metastatic breast cancer. I know I have friends that are black and have metastatic breast cancer. I'm really there uh, with the best of intentions. And why was she so mean to me? And I cried and I was so mm -hmm. upset. And my black friends, including Mayma and Sheila, uh, who really love me, and they were so kind and consoled me um, because I was suffering for having my racism called out. And that was one experience. And it took us a long time to really, like it, it never, we never swallowed it well because our black friends were supportive and, and being loving and, I can't imagine what they go through and how the, you know, like we're in a different world today, I would say, just talking about racism and everything that this country has been going through this year, it would probably be a different situation. And I think all of my black friends would have an easier time telling me that my action was racist, but back then didn't do it. To be honest, I've learned that experience really taught me a lot because our white friends can be fragile. You can fall apart. Like there's, you're taught as a young girl, black girl, you gotta be a strong black woman. And so whether, when somebody else is falling apart, we gotta keep it together. So I didn't see it as my white friend Julia's falling apart. I saw it as my friend falling apart, but there's instances in this world when we have been discriminated against and hurt that are attacked that we can't fall apart because that's all you have at the end of the day as a black woman or a man, you have to show strength because it gets you through many incidences where it's systemic racism, institutional racism, health racism, like there's different things where you have to just be strong. But I, when that, that happened, I think I came to your rescue. The, the lady who, who said the words was really angry 
I didn't understand why she was so angry, even though I was putting on the damn stomach myself. <laughs> I, I knew something had happened that was shifting imperceptibly within our, my psyche and your psyche. We're all looking at it like we kept examining what happened there. Yeah. And I think after several conversations, we realized that what Julia was experiencing, exercising was that white fragility. Absolutely. Um, Pure and, and simple. And, and, by the and, book. And, and but I, I was like, oh, that's what it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> and here I'm comforting her. And I'm like, wait a minute, I should have been comforting the other woman yeah. who was the because in, in spaces we don't get to express ourselves. So I created a safe space mm-hmm. for my black woman, black friends, sisters to come together and express themselves. Sure. And even though I was curating the experience, Julia was over talking over her, you know, more. So even I learned about the power of listening. So, you know, as we're doing this work, the pledge is not just about a pledge to do a thing. A large part of the pledge is to listen, to listen and to learn to pull back, pull back your own layers, your own belief systems. Julia, that's why I love she and Christine so much. Like they've, I've never seen two people barely vulnerable about their own biases or even not being what they think are perceived biases, just not knowing, you know, one of my good friends, Molly McDonald with the Pink Fund, we had a great conversation. We talked twice about, she talked about when she realized she had lived her life as a kind of like closet racist. Not that she was a bad person to Julia's point, but she had been taught about certain things you can't do. You can't have those kinds of friends. You can't, here's a book that tells you the book, this book they have in the community in white communities in certain areas that tells you where to shop. Who to spend time with? You can't go past these borders because this person is, mm-hmm. this, these people are not part of our culture. Or So the pledge is really, and what Julia is talking about is we all kind of had a big aha moment. Then we were talking about how do we take this? Well, how do we take what we freaking just learned here and make it bigger? And so we were going to San Antonio. We, w- we were going to commit to that on a, blo- um, a global stage. We want people to hear what happened, what we all learned. As Black people, learn to accept some things sometimes because you're like, they don't really care or they, it won't matter. I learned that I can no longer use my privilege in a way that's not for power and not speak my truth to power. Mm-hmm. So versus just educating women and, and advocating, I had to ensure that we spoke to our industry partners, corporate partners, Anybody who affected a woman of color in some way by not pushing and all we, as we all don't push, it's like a bias, it's like bystanderism. So when we made the Pledge of San Antonio Breast, it was kind of to say, we're not going to be part of anything that won't include a black woman's voice, experience and in her, in her story. Mm-hmm. And then we made the pledge and people didn't do, many, didn't do much about it. They just kind of like mm-hmm. said, okay, we're going to say it. You say the words, said the words and they walk, went home. And well, then, I want to interrupt you, Nima. I think yeah. that the pledge was started was very small. And I know this is the longest answer in history, Lisa. Sorry, Lisa. I know we talked a lot. <laughs> but but um, so, you know, one of the reasons why I think it was small is because it was two white women initially who kind of came out and said, hey, we have this idea. We've been, we've been doing it. And what we did was, you know, we basically said we're not going to participate. Anything that people ask us to do, a campaign, an event, a speaking opportunity, Anything that we're asked to do, we're not going to do it without a person of color represented. And usually that person of color is a black person. So we started it with person of color. It's now kind of transitioned more towards a focus on on the black communities. But yeah, we had trouble because 
you know, two white women shouldn't be leading the charge on health disparities in the black community. It was just something mm-hmm. we, we kind of took this very small pledge. We still track it today and we made a really big impact and we've gotten, you know, we were able to put people on global advisory panels and to have a speaking opportunity on a, on a world stage at a conference. So, you know, we've been able to, and what that does, as you said, there's a ripple effect. What that does is that kind of gets the, the organization or the company thinking and they're like, oh, this is actually a really good idea. And now we're at the point where nobody asks me and Julia for something without saying, oh, by the way, we already asked this advocate to help out. Yeah. It's Can great. you share, Christine, the people that the number of people that took the, took the pledge? Even I know you say it's a small pledge, but it's not a small pledge. Because that small thing began something that has now gone global. So I really want you guys to say what you white women did. <laughs> for uh, us and the numbers that because people were asking you to do things and you were saying no and some people said okay well who should we put in this place and some people said yes they would take put a black woman in in, in that spot but some said no and that's that's tough so i really want you to show the progress discuss the progress you made in that time before we put things on steroids yeah we had some pushback at the beginning i'll let julia give the stats i can't remember exactly how many, <laughs> how many she, i can see she's looking it up she's right looking now. at a computer but this is pre-george floyd this is yeah. we know black lives matter has been going on yeah. for a long time but yeah. the white community was not uh-huh. really privy to the disparities so exactly um, you know they were kind of like oh like we because we were just talking about race so candidly like we just said we're not going to do this unless you have a black person right involved. and they were like whoa like we're going to say the word black you know, it was just so, you could just see that it was just like, oh my God, this is so taboo. But then, you know, people, they were like, okay, do you, I don't know anybody. Do you know anybody? So then Julie and I would recommend somebody, but one of the things, one of the problems we're running into is that we are having trouble. We kind of end up recommending the same people. So we're trying to like diversify and make sure that, you know, a a whole spectrum of voices is represented. So, so yes, it did start. It did. When I say it started small, I meant it's just me and Julia and we would try to, you know, encourage other people to do it. But Mema took it. And as Julia liked to say, put it on steroids where now it's like, now we're going to pharmaceutical companies. This isn't just patient advocates. Like this is so much bigger. And we're just really, we're really happy to see how, how far it has come. And Julia just sent me, you can, you can jump in Julia, if you want with the stat. It it actually might be a little higher than that. That was for the ACR, but so 32 uses of the pledge. And out of those 32, 29 times it, actually work. So either we were replaced by a black person or a black person was added to the pledge. And, and we sometimes we still use people of color. I think it, it's important to think if you're in a in a metro area that has a significant black population, then it absolutely needs to include representation from that area. But if you were in a small town, or let's say San Antonio, then you absolutely need Latino representation. So it's just a a, a balance. I think mm-hmm. it needs to focus on the the population that you are serving, and and whoever that is needs to be represented. Julie, I have Sorry. a question, just yeah. so I understand. So thirty two times over the past year, you and Christine, as co founders of Grass, you get asked to do a lot of speaking engagements, speak on research panels with pharma, all of that. You're you're hot commodities for sure. So thirty two times you said we're not going to do it unless we either you make an extra seat at the table for a black advocate 
or someone's uh, you replace me or us with with a black person and as you said a latinx person if that makes sense for that particular community is that exactly what it is so and 29 times so this is just in the past year and so 29 times they the the entity the organization the symposium whatever they all said that makes sense okay we're gonna do it i just want to sit on that for a second that is like an amazing (laughs) stat for just not even 12 months. Let me just also point out it's, we're not in December yet. This is, this is just in this period of time. Okay. Well, I think we, we didn't really realize the privilege that we have as white people. Like we get asked all the time for stuff and this is even predates grasp. I mean, just as individual advocates, we get asked. And so we didn't even really realize the power that we had. And so I think that that's kind of our main role here is to, amplify we want to amplify so mama does all this amazing stuff and many many people know about her but i would bet that not many white people know about her and so our job is to speak to the white communities our job is to lift the voices of people of color and amplify that voice so that people in our community the white community can hear it and say oh this is this is something i I, i'm very interested in this and so i mean really we 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 talk about the small part of the pledge before mama put it on steroids because we want to make sure people understand what they can do. I mean, there's so much, there's a lot of people who say, I, I want to be an ally. What can I do? Well, you can step aside and get out of the spotlight. That's one way to do it. And so, you know, I'll tell you some of these, uh, the, some of the opportunities were really hard to turn down. I, I had one in particular that was really hard. And thankfully I had a call with Julia and Mama just happened to be right after, but I got a lot of pushback um, telling me that this, you know, I don't see color. You're the only person that I think can do this. And it would have been a really cool opportunity. And I still had to say, no, I said, well, you can take both of us. I have another person I can recommend. You can take both of us, or you can just take the black patient advocate. And that's what they did. And so it was hard to do, but like, that's, that. this is, it's easy compared to what black women are facing oh. on a daily basis. So, you right. know, that's, I just right. say you kind of have to put your ego aside. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm grateful that Mema kind of led this charge with this, with, you know, with this pledge, because it was only right that a black woman should be going to pharma to say this. But what Julie and I do, we kind of like are her, you know, we're like the bodyguards on either side of her, like saying, yeah, you better listen to her because this is, this is for real. And it, and it really does help. And I mean, it, I'm kind of embarrassed that our, white privilege makes us more powerful in that way but it is there the best we can do is admit that we have it and then use it for good and i was going to say that because black advocates have been saying this for years about being on panels and stuff so it's it's crazy how it took two white women like you said white privilege um to amplify which i don't know but we've even in 2013 when i became an advocate the first thing when i went to a conference i said like, where are the black people? You know, why aren't black oncologists on the stage doing panels and stuff? But it's crazy how when, like you said, you know, two white women had to bring this to the forefront, which just shouldn't have had to been because we should have had a voice many, many years ago. Let's take a short break. This is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Support and Education at SHARE and the Chair of the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance. For 35 years, SHARE has offered support groups for women living with MBC. Today, we offer 18 metastatic breast cancer support groups each month, facilitated by peer volunteers. That is, women living with MBC, just like you. There's a group for young women, a group for black people, a group for newly diagnosed people, 
and several groups for those living with MBC for two or more years. If you're not a group person, call our TalkMets helpline, a helpline dedicated to those living with MBC. When you call the helpline, a woman living with MBC will answer the phone on the other end. Collectively, these women, these volunteers, have so much information, experience, and compassion. Give them a call or attend a group. We're here to help. Visit sharecancersupport.org or call the TalkMets helpline, 844-ASK-SHARE. That's 844-275-7427. And now we're back. Along with my co-host, Sheila McGlone, this is our conversation with Mae McCarmo of the Tiger Lily Foundation and Christine Hodgson and Julia Mowes of the hashtag Pull Up a Seed Initiative, the hashtag Inclusion Pledge, and the co-founders of GRASP. Sheila and I asked Mema what her initiatives this year mean to her and to her organization. Here she is. I'm running a Black-led organization that has been around for 13, almost 14 years, and nobody's asked me to be on this pedestal, or this stage rather, to talk about the challenges we're facing. But also, in terms of like sustainability, me existing at this place in time, there's no fucking way I'd be here if I hadn't had my ally friends when you look at the, even the money distribution, people are giving money to these white research studies or white advocacy organizations. They're doing the same thing the same way that's not changing, but they're throwing pennies at Tiger Lily. So as you ask, you know, where are black people? How do you, how do you, how do you propose it's right that you build solutions for a population, not with them and not by their side? It's not going to work for one, but how are we even distributing the wealth so that advocacy groups like mine have which has the, the the trust of the black advocate can sustain itself can create materials content you know go to the community and do outreach and, and train advocates through our programs to have be trusted partners as we create solutions so what we're doing is saying look at the system not just the companies how they're doing things but throwing money at a black organization without walking with us side by side will not fix the problem you have to be able to say, I'm going to amplify the voices. I'm going to train the people. I'm going to invest in Detroit, in Atlanta, in Baltimore, in D.C. By building up organizations in a way that are stronger, as strong as the largest ones, giving them money, time. And then also while we're doing that, you look at your privilege and look at your power and how to use that. And that's what these two women did. And so that's why I really appreciate you guys. It propelled me in a way to use my privilege for power, to realize that as a Black-led leader in this space, I can't just sit by and just say, you know what, I'm going to accept five grand from this company, $5,000 or $10,000 when they're giving, um, sorry, love Coleman, but giving them a million dollars. But I'm a Black woman with, who helps Black people who's trying to amplify their voices and you're ignoring me because I'm not big enough. And, and I think that we have to change that. And the pledge is changing that for sure. I have not seen so many Black advocates empowered, building their strength, using their voices that I've seen in the past six months. Sheila has is NBC. Thank God she's still here. But that foot on the neck analogy for me, when I watched that video, that's our entire life. And unless our white allies step up and speak up and say, you know what, I was wrong, for one, Listen to, I want to hear your pain. Number two, I don't want to push it down. And I want to hear what you have to say. And we all heal this collective trauma because it is bi-directional that has to be listening and learning and healing. Unless that's done, then we will never see equity in our healthcare system. And so the, this is really for us, the pledge is really about healing. It's a healing that, you know, has to occur on the point of our white allies and our black population. Because at some point there's forgiveness that has to happen as well. Um, 
I don't want to be, I, I've ex I think for me, this whole time has been a, a time to be able to express myself in a way I could not before because nobody went to hear about black people, stuff like black this and black that. People of color sounded more amenable to them. And we can say that I am a black, black woman and I deserve to be heard. And here's what the system has done to, to squash my voice and my, how, how do you suppose I lasted this long? You know, like to last 14 years without getting funding from organizations, 14 years of, to Christine and Julia's point, I did, you know, sometimes 50 different talks a year for free. You know, they would pay the scientists, the white scientists and not pay the black advocate. And they're giving money to all the big organizations. And it's like, you know, you know what? You're going to respect me because I deserve to be heard. My population of black women deserve to have the right to life. And, you know, as I always say, being black should not negate your right to life. And so this pledge is a lot of different things. Um, mostly it's about healing our pain, forgiving, and it's about really, you know, taking the system and just smashing it down and flipping that damn table because it shouldn't exist at all. Whiteness is the default in our world and we have to swim in this world. And we have, as white people, I think have a responsibility to really work, uh, put in the work for to become anti-racist. And it's, it's a journey. It's a process. It is, it takes time. And yeah, if we're a little bit uncomfortable, I think that's a small price to pay. I'm thinking of Dr. Kendi reflecting on his incredible scholarship. We have to feel the uncomfortableness and our black sisters have been feeling this uncomfortableness for a long time. And we can be nice white people, but that does squat. I loved Christine, the way you described how pulling up a seat, giving up your seat, giving up your voice can feel uncomfortable. But I think that what's more, what's more egregious and harder for, is for us to see our friends die. And so I think, uh, and, and to see families decimated by black cancer. Uh, we've got much to do. So I do want to get into some tactics, though, because I do think our listeners want to know. When you talk about your hashtag no more disparities, you know, initiative and the hashtag pull up a seat mini symposium, that's just, they're running bi-monthly. So maybe if you could break those down a little bit, because people may want to use those hashtags. How do those come to be? And how are they working? I can I can talk about a couple of things, but basically, um, we had um, when when this light came to us, where we realized that we needed to start unlearning and changing the way that we addressed life and our privilege. We were also at the same time starting grasp and developing this idea of patients and researchers and oncologists coming together and learning from each other. And the fact that patients have an expertise, just like the other parties in this equation. So when it comes to Black women and Black people with breast cancer, they have a unique expertise. And there is something there that needs to be recognized and learned from. And more and more this year, we're talking about people and organizations interested in talking with the Sheilas and Jerseys of the world because they are realizing, uh, partly because of Mema's pledge and all of the work that she's doing, that they 
that they need to do better and that they need to listen to the experts and the patients. And in this case, the black patients living with breast cancer. So what we did with pull up a seat is we combined grasp, which highlights the patient um, knowledge as another piece uh, that needs to be highlighted with the whole work on disparities and focusing on black patients living with breast cancer. So in this case, we, we wanted to have the black women um, really at the center as another party that needs to be part of conversations and create this dialogue with healthcare providers so that they speak with the black women and hear what their experience is when they are receiving treatment for breast cancer and when they are diagnosed for breast cancer and when they're uh, being screened for breast cancer, what are unique challenges faced by this population and what can the healthcare providers be doing for the better? I mean, a lot of this discussion came from Sheila talking about a guide that she was working on on how this is how, this is what you need to know about me and my community and and it's a list of things that people need to think about and consider I'll, and it was I'll let... specific to healthcare providers which exactly. was that was the well, part. well so ahead. sheila's sheila's brochure was about healthcare providers and she sent me this sent us this sent us this and she said i made this brochure up about what a provider should be asking a black woman and i was like oh my god i love this and and I was like, will you trust us to like make it pretty? And because our whole thing is we want to see for us, by us programming, meaning for a black woman, by us, you know, black led created content for our allies and for to educate our white providers or people who are not of color. And then so we kept thinking about it. And, you know, we're the kind, all of us, to give us an idea. We start thinking, how do we make this bigger? And then we thought, well, you know, Sheila can trust us because she can talk to us about these things in a safe space. What about the white provider? How do we reach more health healthcare providers and make this bigger than just, you know, make, make Sheila's dream bigger? And how do we all come together and collaborate to make this something that is bi-directional learning, a learning um, a process? Then as we began thinking about it, the next thing was, okay, so if we have this pledge, which is this mechanism, and the, the, the thing is to end these different barriers, what Sheila had created so beautifully on her own as a black patient who's metastatic was a tool for white providers that could be used by pharma, by physician organizations, by, you know, all over the country or the world. So if there are all these barriers, we wanted to maybe look at how to structure the pull up of seats and no more disparities conversations to be bi-directional learning conversations that would attack specific barriers. So maybe mm -hmm. having the but one would be focused on educating your provider about how to talk to a black patient. The next would be around another barrier, like, you know, literacy or social, social determinants of health or financial barriers. But the point would be that we would come out with an asset to give to people of our, to our allies. Our whole goal is to figure out how to build solutions to end the barriers. And Sheila's document was led, led to the, this growing into a bi-directional conversation. So with no more disparities, it's no more hashtag no K-N-O-W more disparities. So it's, that's just a place for the black population, the black patient to talk safely. We're, we don't record those sessions. They're just a safe space to, in sacred mm -hmm. space to just be yourself. And then the, the bi-directional piece is the pull up a seat, which is telling our white provider to pull up a seat or friends in here and we can kind of talk together 
And from each of those partner conversations, we can create some kind of asset to give out to say, based on our conversations, both the no more and pull up, here's a tool to use to end this barrier in your healthcare center community system. Because, you know, if you were to add up the dollars that have been spent on webinars between March and now, you literally could solve the barriers literally in the, you know, by investing money. Because all these people are just talking about the problem. And we're like, you know, we don't have time for that. We don't have time. People's lives are at stake. <laughs> so Sheila was like, here, I'm going to start with this. Here's a block document. And we got some seed funding for it. And now we have like, I think we have eight more to go. I but I think- I was just gonna add to, um, to what Mame was saying that Sheila's email came at the same time that Julie and I, I think it was Julie and I received an email from an oncologist who was very interested in learning more about how to, he was, you know, wanted to treat black patients. And, and so it was just sort of like this perfect, like synergy. We're like, oh, okay, this is now, this is now doable. I mean, I think Julie and I had talked about doing something on disparities in the past, but now there was like a hunger for, you know, people were like, okay, I recognize my bias and I want to learn how to, to, to do that. And we really thought using grasp as the model for discussing this was really, you know, what we hope is that when they get to small breakout groups, which is, we did that exact same thing, they went into breakout groups. We want the doctors, the healthcare providers to feel comfortable sharing experiences where they had bias. You know, and we didn't mm. think that in a big forum that people were going to be as willing to be candid and talk about it. So we were like, let's put it in a small group because we all have bias. We've all, we've all probably done things that we, you know, regret or maybe we aren't even aware of it. But right. it would be important, you know, if, if these healthcare providers really want to learn, then they need to, they need to do part of the work in learning is being vulnerable and, yeah. and opening yourself up and saying, yes, I made some mistakes. So that's kind of the, it was just like a perfect meshing of ideas. <laughs> well, we'll definitely. Yeah. And I love the grass model because it really gives you a safe space to talk with, with San Antonio Brass, When we brought in our black advocates, angel advocates, people had never seen that large number of black women at a conference before. And when you talk about, you know, building a seat at the table, how do you even go to the table when you don't know it exists? You know? So we're asking, we're making the black population a fault for, not engaging, not following protocol, not listening, you know, why are they dying of breast cancer the most? But there are platforms like San Antonio Breast historically or at ASCO where we don't, we never have had black patient advocates at those tables to co-create solutions. So when we began planning on, you know, the San Antonio Breast Fireside Chat last year, and then Christine and Julia and I started talking about what they were doing with grasp and ideas, we thought, why don't we just partner and bring patients? I bring them to the San Antonio breast. We all kind of try to get funding. And then, you know, sometimes black patients don't even know how to talk to a scientist. I know that I was terrified for myself first time because I thought even patients in general, white or black, but as a black patient, I thought this guy is so much more, you know, more smarter than me or knows more about science. This is like when I first began my advocacy work 14 years ago, but over time, my confidence was built up. So what was powerful for me was to see advocates coming to the table who had never been to a San Antonio before or knew what exist, existed two months before, talking to a scientist getting comfortable, growing in their knowledge and power, and having the scientists really begin to see the value in the patient perspective, white and, and black. But as we talk about, you know, on those platforms, that, like those, you know, global conferences, that they can't find black patients or the women of color aren't engaging, we're like, not only are you, well, you cannot find them, 
you can't say that anymore because they're here <laughs> and they are engaging. And we had to make, I wanted to see my patient advocates on level with the scientists, you know, not as where the scientists up here and the patients down there. But if you want to end a barrier or you want to get more engagement, you have to work in partnership with the black patient community to make that happen as an equal partner, not as, you know, not don't come to me for my genetics or for to be part of a trial when there's multiple barriers there, many, most of which deeply is a trust, right? And rooted, which is rooted in factual systemic injustices around abusing black people in the healthcare system. The, the grass model really was like a way for us to start looking at as partners, me and Christine, Julia and Sheila and all the women that came, how to really, you know, build a relationship. Cause it's not about just the science of this. This is about human beings historically having mistrust because of things that happened that we had to kind of come together towards and build a friend, a relationship, a friendship, communication, equal partnership, you know, shared tools and, and share our ideas in a human perspective and a human way. I think it, it led to a lot of transformation and made the advocates more powerful. Sheila created the brochure. We're asking other advocates to start to create other tools we can give to our provider friends and scientists and researchers and industry partners to help us end these barriers, you know, in our lifetime. The pledge has really blossomed in the sense that Tiger Lily is now opening up San Antonio Breast with AACR. So we're the opening of the symposium. And I'm saying it because these two little white girls <laughs> pushed <laughs> and then it pushed, it propelled me. And now for the first time in history, an advocacy organization, a black led organization and a woman led organization is going to be opening up San Antonio Breast with ACR as the opening session, like three hour session. So if we were in San Antonio, <laughs> if it was in person, this MEMA would be standing in the conference center. So I, I don't know if you've been Lisa, but basically there's their official events happening in the conference center and mm -hmm. anything that happens there, it's actually official part of like SABCS. And then there are events happening in every neighboring hotel, right? Evening events, morning events, etc. right before. And um, last year, Mama's event um, that really launched the angels and started talking about this, where we first talked about the pledge with the with Mama and the founders of for the breast of us. That was at a neighboring hotel. So it was part of the whole conference experience, but it wasn't an official event. Now, MEMA was invited to be part of this AACR um, opening session, which is official. So we won't know the difference because it's all via Zoom, but if it was in person, it would be in the conference center after you have to scan your badge and registered guests can attend. So I just want to... Um, put like an image to what how big of a deal this really is oh i i'm loving it and i totally get that it is such a big deal and congratulations mema so well deserved and not, I, not just none of, i can't accept all the i think it's just like i appreciate it but i feel like it's yeah we had to push hard yeah it's a team it's a team effort and i'm loving what this team is doing i love i love that you're going to be on stage mema how's that and that's going to be great. I can't wait to see it. Thank you, though. Um, and, and, and bigger. It'll be more because it'll be virtual. Yeah, 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 yeah. It'll be more exactly. Virtual. I'll take the compliment, Christine. You're, I'm not good at compliments. <laughs> but I, I think even though, you know, even though COVID is, uh, you know, it's been, it's been hard, this pandemic, but 
we're going to be on a global platform. So to the room, Julia, I would have been on that stage and that's where I wanted for the girls to be in this conversation in that room. But because of us being in our, you know, at our computers because of COVID, the platform will be even larger. People don't have to buy tickets or get hotel rooms or get an Uber or get or pay for the registration for the conference. They can be at the computer at home watching um, virtually, probably for free, maybe. Um, this all over the world. And I want to see people in underserved communities watching, little girls who are in high school watching and college watching, mothers and daughters. I think this conversation has to go beyond just the scientific or provider or patient's stage. I want to see people understanding how using their voices and their privilege for power can impact in a way that is global. Like we never dreamed this would happen. I mean, we kept pushing for these things, but it, it was a dream. And in a year, like look at where we are. And my goal is that we would have this conversation around disparities as part of the conference every single year at every major conference. So let's just manifest it by saying <laughs> I love that. And I do know that Sheila and I both have a few more questions for you. Okay, Mayma, what would you say to Black women living with NBC who may be skeptical that these signatures won't add up to real sustainable changes to our outcome? I love that question, Sheila. I think, I, I think, you know, I, I think people, I would say to them, if you are not sure about the pledge and how it's going to create sustainable change, you can, um, Email me at mema at tigerlilyfoundation.org. Email me. I'll send, send me an email. I will talk to you. And I would say join the damn pledge. You know, this is not a MEMA pledge. It's not for me. This is for every Black woman that wants to create change in her community. So one of my things, and I, maybe I'm, I'm, I call it a pet peeve, is people that would say, well, how is that going to work? What are you doing? I am not the one that owns the pledge. The pledge is for every Black woman. So I would ask them, to join me in looking at the pledge, helping us get signatures, helping us create equitable outcomes by making phone calls, setting up meetings, joining the pledge committee. We have a disparities committee that is in place. We have calls twice a month and I don't know everything or have the right answers and I have limited time as well. So I would say that I, the more questions, the more people that find, you know, maybe potential opportunities or, you know, missed opportunities that we may not have thought of. Contact me, email me, call me, text me, you know, let's, let's do this together. This is a, this is a team effort. All hands on deck, black and white, all people on deck, early stagers to late stagers. I mean, you know, I think that this work is really for me about creating an equal space for us to have and live in a, in a better world. And so if you think it's working, then great. Um, if you think you want to help, great too. Um, but the pledge is very tactical. It was built with with my advocacy brain in place perspective, but we had Christine Julia as well. We also interviewed a lot of Black advocates and patients and doctors. And the cool thing is I have a lot of friends in pharma. So I said to a few people who are allies, you know, what do you think? How can I, how can you help me make this pledge something that can be um that is as strong as possible and I can achieve equitable, accountable action. So it wasn't just built from one point of view. It was built with a systemic point of view, looking at a different angles, different angles to make sure that we were um, creating a tangible framework that could be, that would give any type of industry a way to, to engage, whether it's faith-based, whether it's advocacy, whether it's pharma, whether it's telecommunications. But again, I'll say this one last time. It's not about 
this is not a mainless pledge. This is about the patient advocate. So have them engage, have them reach out to us and become part of the solution. I would just add to that. I think you can include the website in the episode notes, Lisa, that it's a very detailed score sheet. We talk about a scorecard. So there's, it's very, very detailed what not only for-profit companies can do, but nonprofit organizations, like what they can do to address this issue. So it's a very multifaceted, you know, this is a very complicated problem and it's a systemic problem. It's going to take more than a quick fix. And so, you know, MAMA really did that work digging and trying to figure out like, how can I approach this at every angle? And so I would just encourage people to read more about it on the website as well. Yeah, thank you for that. Go ahead, Sheil. I want to say too, you know, there are a lot of people (laughs) that don't believe that black breast cancer exists because I see it on Facebook where women are arguing, well, what's black breast cancer? So I think also too is educating the community. Not only are farmers, pharma companies and these big breast cancer organizations, but educating women period that yes, black breast cancer exists and ours is different. And we're at a, you know, we're dying faster because I've seen argument on Facebook where I've had to shut off. So I think we also need to continue to educate the community about breast cancer and about the inclusion pledge. Yeah. And and Sheila, you're talking about the educating, not just the black community where there's still some education, but also the entire breast cancer community. Yeah. So to Sheila's point, one, one thing the pledge is calling for is an investment in specific research that focuses on the physiology of black women and breast cancer. So we want to see more money going towards supporting Black PIs and and in, even in STEM careers, you know, and um, we want to see more Black people in STEM, you know, seeing more physicians of color advocating for this research and putting more dollars behind um, Black breast cancer studies and research and science. So the pledge is very multifaceted. We have a, an approach for, again, for the scientific community as well, you know, and part of being at San Antonio this year, part of the work we're doing, like putting us on the stage in terms and focusing on disparities for three hours is all around black breast cancer is making, that's a three hour conversation around black breast cancer that we never have had before in that kind of focus. So the pledge is systemic. It also is policy focused. So um, to Sheila's point, some of this, you know, this has to be very targeted, you know, um, outreach because, People don't think black breast cancer exists and that's not true. Our genetics are different. You know, beginning with slavery, we were is intermarrying. There's people going back and forth across the globe and there's genetic things that have happened to our bodies that make us predisposed, I believe, as Sheila does, to more aggressive breast cancers. Um, so that's an important thing to focus on, the science of it. But also policy-wise, you know, there's policies and laws that are, you know, against in different topics, why aren't there policies around committing to addressing ending barriers for black people? Why isn't there an anti-bias or anti-discrimination or anti-disparity law where, you know, or even a law against ensuring that if there are 12 barriers, we can invest money and time as a nation in ending them. You know, the money's there. I, I read a study and I'm sure the numbers are off. It's been a while, but it showed that the black consumer spends about $13 trillion in consumer products, consumer spending. And pharma, pharma makes about the same amount in commensurately in terms of income. That's just pharma, not even go into commercial or corporations. So how is it that we're marketing to the black population in a way that people are con- who are black are consuming makeup and skincare and hair care products and clothes 
but not marketing to people in a way where they're consuming health data in health communications. So someone's profiting and I'm not saying pharma is, I think the, com the companies like the people kill over sneakers that are in poor communities. Why are people more likely to fight over a pair of shoes than to get access to care? And that's not just black as other communities as well. But I think that if these companies can spend so much money to get into black people's heads, to make them us buy these products around skincare and hair care, why aren't they investing as equitably in making sure that we're consuming healthcare data that can save our lives? Because marketing isn't just, is, is very tactical and specific. It's about, it's about psychology. It's about mass media and mm -hmm. mass manipulation. So part of the pledge is looking at marketing companies. And I want to like have the Nikes and the, those companies that have had success in making their, their slogans a tagline and say, well, if you can make Michael Jordan, you know, let's just do it. All those things, a symbol of, you know, buy my freaking products. How are you, why aren't you taking that money to invest it in, in, in black people and any barriers? The money is there. So when I hear about people saying, you know, <clears throat> we can't find black people, we can't, they can't, we don't get them into our trials. Well, you can get them to buy your sneakers and your t-shirts and cars. Why can't you mm. equitably invest in marketing health content that's life-saving? Mm. So I don't buy that BS, to be honest with you. Mm. And our senior producer actually sent me a quote from Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, and I, and I will read only the last part of it because I actually feel like what the Inclusion Pledge is, is trying to do and I think is starting to really make headway is lifting all boats, right? Because anti-racism hurts everyone. <laughs> And so Dr. Dr. Kendry said the most effective demonstration, like the most effective education efforts, help people find the anti-racist power within. And I feel like listening to you talk, Mema, and hearing about all the amazing things that Sheila's done as an advocate and Jersey and Shante and Shante and all of your angels. And I just feel like it's just another example of black women helping lift up all of us to become better for our society, for our life, for our world, to be better. And, and so it is such a privilege to talk to all of you and what a privilege it is for me to be able to work with the people that I do like Sheila on the podcast, but also to get to interview people like you all. And it certainly helps me every single day on this anti-racist path that I'm on. So, so Lisa, I really appreciate, I really appreciate that. To add to your end note, Dr. King had a quote that I love and it says, I cannot be who I ought to be if you are not who you ought to be. That is an interrelation of reality. And even though I'm speaking from a place of pure gut, not anger, but like firmness. And I'm very, I'm very firm about my beliefs. At the end of the day, I can't be who I should, who I ought to be, who God made me to be if my sisters aren't who they ought to be. And at a very human level, all of our allies can't be all that they were born to be if we're not on this path of ensuring that every human being has the rights that this other group may have. So once we're in a place of leading from love and we're all equal, the humanity, human life in, in the world can be a better place. And it may seem trite, but it's, it really comes back to love. You know, it comes back to valuing human life and valuing people's heartbeats and valuing the right that we have to exist in a world where we all have that basic right to, to live in a way that we were born to live. And so at the end of the day, for me, it's about justice for all.
people. That's where I lead from. I do want to say one thing, lady, sure, that sure. I think that I think is is important to say to the listeners of the podcast that are white and that may question what privilege are we talking about? I have metastatic breast cancer. What are we talking about privilege? I'm going to die too, right? Why black breast cancer? Or as another white person, I'll say a quote that I learned and that has really been a key answer to this question. When we talk about white privilege, we're not saying that a white person's life hasn't been hard. It only means that whatever it is that is making your life hard is not your skin tone, or in that matter, the way people treat you because of your skin tone. So when I think about my black friends, and they also have metastatic breast cancer, so do I, but they also have a weight tied to their feet as they're underwater. And and that really is a, a level of difficulty that is being added to their lives on top of, in our case, metastatic cancer. And w- we often get get these questions. I'm sure, Lisa, you do too. So it, it ha- has been a way that has helped me explain to people how I see the importance of doing work on anti-Black racism and I mean, I clearly didn't get great cards in life. I was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer at 29 years old while I was pregnant. That sucked. But if everything held constant, if I also was Black, my my outcome would have been worse because of the way our society works and because of the racism that I would have experienced. So I I think it's just important to add that perspective. Thank you so much, Julia, for articulating that. It's so important. And thank you. Wow, this is really, this is going to have listeners thinking. So I think you all. It's like being on a, I equate it to like Julia said, like I imagine being, for us, like being black women in a space, it's like you're, you're on a hill going straight uphill, not even like remotely inclining Mm. and you're pushing your elephant up the hill and you're on roller skates and there's lead on your back. It's, it's totally unfair place to be. And I tell my friends who ask me, what is white privilege? And I I say that is the fact you get to walk around the world white without the lens of a black person. Nobody sees you in judges. Nobody thinks about you differently. No one, you know, no one yeah. um, has nobody grabs the yeah. first when you get on the elevator. Yeah, whiteness is the default. Whiteness is like a constant privilege. It's in the water. That's what I try to explain to my family members. It's like it's in the water, guys. It's the default. You don't. People aren't even defined if they're white as a white person because it's the default. So it affects every aspect of our world. Just am so grateful to all of you. So thank you so much for joining us today. I really am so grateful. Thanks for having us. And I really love this conversation. It was very honest, very raw, very... Whenever we talk about things like this, I feel like I heal and I... I just feel so much love, you know, and I want everybody listening to think to know that this is really about, this is why these, these talks are important. So thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Sheila, thank Christine, you and Julia. Taking a pledge is just one part of this, as you heard in the interview. 
Specific actions are required, and that takes the commitment of individuals and organizations to address and also to be held accountable to those commitments. When we spoke with Carol Evans, CEO and Executive Director of our parent nonprofit, SHARE Cancer Support, last month in November, we asked her why it was important for SHARE to be part of the pledge and what role she sees herself and the organization playing in this effort. Here's Carol. Well, I think the healthcare disparities are largely a product of systemic racism. You know, it took me a long time to understand systemic racism, even though I launched a huge movement for women of color in 2002. As a white woman, you know, it took me a long time to really understand the systemic nature of racism. It was, you know, like a lot of white women, I thought it was an individualistic kind of thing. And you have to, you have to, you know, get to a sophisticated level of thinking to truly understand how, how racism it, why it's here today and where it comes from in our past and how it's just embedded in so many things that we just take as a matter of course and that, that we shouldn't. So, you know, when you're talking about systemic racism, everybody has to do their part. And it's really, a, it's a huge challenge. It's extremely difficult. Nothing could be more difficult in this time where, you know, racism is being welcomed at the highest level of our government and society. But at the same time, there's an enormous movement to understand systemic racism and to combat it. So everybody needs to do their, their part. Black Lives Matters. They have to help us be, all of us, to be aware. The fight against mass incarceration has to carry on. You know, the issue of bail, you know, is a huge one with systemic racism and health disparities where black women are 50% more likely to die of uterine cancer, you know, than white women. I mean, these are giant issues. And so we in healthcare, we share as a patient-oriented organization. We have to drive patients and patient advocates and organizations that serve patients to understand the systemic nature of this problem and to realize that there's not something that anyone's doing wrong in terms of the patients themselves, that they are victims of a huge, much larger social problem and political problem and cultural problem. And we have to do our part in the healthcare world to combat it. If every, if every industry and every you know, type of organization does their part, then it can get solved. I, I am a very hopeful person. I see the worst in what's going on around us, but I also see the, the best of what could be. The inclusion pledge was, is very important because there are kind of cataclysmic things that happen that can move you know, the future closer to the present. And when, when someone brave and strong figures out a way to make others take action, then you know, it's, the, it's the group momentum that gets the result. So, you know, at Working Mother, for example, when we said we're gonna find every company that's doing something good for working mothers and we're gonna award them for doing that, it became a 35-year banner that people could get behind and understand the simple basics of what working mothers needed. Same thing with the inclusion pledge. If you can, if one organization can clearly and creatively move others to action or to commitment, then it's in all of our best interest to get behind and push that as much as we can.
This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, and our truly collaborative and expanding team of Jersey Baker, Natalia Green, Victoria Goldberg, Kirby Lewis, Sheila McGlone, Shante Randall, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, the Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. Interning with us are Angelica Alberstadt and Amy Tedeschi. We have benefited from expert social media consulting from Jake Amarelli, and we now have, finally, expert sound design and original music compositions from Jim Clemens. We have an exciting November and December planned to close out our inaugural season, and we look forward to launching season two in March of 2021. You can find more of our episodes of RNBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate us, and review us, and look for a new episode every Monday. And submit your Just Gotta Share moments, check out our blog, and full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you.